Deuteronomy chapter 2. We enter into our study this morning. Once again, we enter into uncertain times. If you've been watching the news, I encourage you to watch it closely. Although you're not going to be getting the whole truth, even from the best of our news stations, you're getting uh, piecemeal what's really going on and you're getting little snippets and tidbits of what's truly happening in the Middle East. I'm amazed that we live in a time where Jerusalem and Israel are so much at the forefront of world news and what's going on. In my lifetime, it has never been as intense as it seems to be right now. And we're going to talk about these things, probably going to talk about them a little more next week even than this morning. But as we open up to Deuteronomy chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1, if you'll just follow along as I read. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. Moses at this point is recounting the journey that the children of Israel had taken from Egypt all the way to the Promised Land. The first few chapters of Deuteronomy we've talked about, he recounts that, he goes over it, he, he instills it in the people's hearts and their minds to remind them where they've been. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You've circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north and command the people, saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. For I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked a thing. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Eleth and Ezion Geber. And we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Father, I pray that you would write these things on our hearts, that your word would be alive to us, that this would be more than, than history. Lord, the implications here. Your word is more relevant today than it has ever been. And as we study through, may we have life application and life understanding today for us as we walk out of this barn. May we be able to take the things that you've taught us and live by them. May we, Father, live the way you've called us to live. And Jesus, may we strive to be more like you. The study of your word through prayer and intercession through time just spent listening and being with you. Father, I pray that you would crush the busyness of our lives and call us into communion with you. And may this morning, as we read these words and study these verses, may this morning be communion. May it continue. And may we walk with you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Today's study is a story of conflict, but it's a conflict that actually started hundreds of years before Israel approached the Promised Land. It's a family conflict. It began truly as a story of two brothers. You may have heard it. Turn back to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, where the story begins literally in the womb. 
Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why am I I this way? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. (laughs) That's a lot of people. (laughs) And two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red. All over like a hairy garment. Must have been a pretty child. (laughs) And they named him Esau, which by the way means hairy. So the first child's name was Harry. Verse 26, after his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So you know there was a struggle just to be the first one out. Harry came out first, but his brother, who was called Jacob, whose name means heel catcher, She's got Harry and heel catcher. Heel catcher comes out second. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. (laughs) The story rolls on because Harry, who by the way is a biblical picture of the flesh. Anytime you study about Esau, anytime you look at Esau in the scriptures, it is a picture of the flesh. And the way the flesh even battles with the spirit in our lives. So Harry sells his birthright to heel catcher. Yeah, I know. It was upsetting for them, too. (laughs) Harry comes in hungry one day, sells his birthright to Jacob for some red stew, picking up a new nickname, Edom, which means red. Flip over to Genesis 25. Oh, no, continue on. Verse 27. It says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. The contrast between these two is just great. You've got a macho man and you've got a man who likes to sew. (laughs) Verse 28 says, Now Isaac loved Esau, but he had a taste for game. Because he had a taste for game. And Rebekah, well, she loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field. And he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I am famished. And therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. What use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, well, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. But the stew thickens. Jacob, that is heel catcher, whose name indicates the ability to usurp or to seize or to commandeer, he tricks his father into giving him Harry's blessing. Look at chapter 27. Chapter 27 and verse 30. It tells us that it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, And Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of his father that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat his son's game, that you may bless me. Well, Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? He said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. 
And then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes. And in this moment of incredible realization, Isaac says, Yes, and he shall be blessed. He had already blessed Jacob. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, heel catcher? For he supplanted me these two times, and he took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, watch this, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with him grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. It shall come about, when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. And so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, you may be one who could well sing the song, Don't Know Much About History. Don't Know Much Biology. But I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world it will be. Now, I shared last Sunday night that I'm 20 years now married to my wife. This month, thank you very much. Feel free to clap, don't have to. 20 years. Okay, stop that, I was just kidding. So, we've been married 20 years. 20 years ago, in July 1986, a lot was happening on the world scene. But I had no clue. I was just saying, hey, I do know that I love you, and I know that you love me too. What a wonderful world it could be. I, you know what I found out over 20 years? My love for my wife has not made it a better world. Her love for me has not made this world a better place in which to live. In fact, the love that you share, husbands and wives and spouses all together, families, the love that we share has not made the world a better place. It's the greatest flaw, by the way, in the whole evolutionary theory. We should be getting better, and yet we're not. We see a world that for all our attempts to love is still embroiled in conflict. Now Jacob and Esau, after 20 years, will have some degree of reconciliation, but a deeper wound would remain in their families, the family of Esau, the family of Jacob. Across generations it would fester, and it would plague their descendants all the way up to present day. For if you're thinking, you know Jacob is Israel. And you also might know that Esau, in addition to his uncle Ishmael, is one of the two forefathers of the Arab people. And so the fact that we see conflict between Arabs and Israelis today should be of no surprise to anybody. Jacob 
3,500 years ago said, Your brother you shall serve, and it shall come about when you become restless. You'll break his yoke from your neck. By your sword you shall live. Conflict was prophesied. Conflict has occurred across all of history. One of the reasons I believe this great book. Because so long ago I predicted exactly what we're watching right now. Turn on the TV in the news. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Psalm 83. The 83rd Psalm. For in this psalm, we see literally a who's who list of Israel's foes in the last days. Psalm 83, verse 1. Psalms are easy to find. You can just flop your Bibles open to the middle and you should be just about there. Psalm 83, verse 1. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, O God, do not be still. Behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Jabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has also joined with them, and they have become a help to the children of Lot. So Asaph, the psalmist here, continues, he says, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. This is a great description. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Now listen, if you go back to verses 6, 7, and 8, you see some present day peoples very clearly listed. Edom and the Ishmaelites, that would be the Arabs today. For Edom and Ishmael were the forefathers, as we said. And Moab and the Hagrites, same thing. Jabal and Ammon. Ammon. Ammon as in Jordan. It speaks of Jordan in verse 7. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Tyre is present day Lebanon. And Assyria is present day Syria. So what we see going on here, prophesied, even spoken of in Psalm 83, this list of nations, Jordan, Saudi Arabia is, is the Arabic, uh, Arabian Peninsula, the United, United Arab Emirates, Oman, that Tyre is now Lebanon, and we have Syria, and Persia, by the way, is modern day Iran. Hal Lindsey in his book Everlasting Hatred says all of these people are linked together by their common, continuous enmity toward Israel. And the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 35 verse 5 says, You have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Everlasting hatred. This goes all the way back and we see it being played out today on the world stage. Hezbollah fighting Israel from the north. 
going after them, supported by, funded by Syria. You have Hamas in the south in the Gaza Strip also fighting against Israel. Israel is right now fighting a war of two fronts. And Hamas funded by Iran. And if you've been watching the news, you know that missiles now have struck from Lebanon, have struck as far down into Israel as Haifa, and also Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, a city that Cheryl and I were walking in in January, has now been hit by missiles coming out of Lebanon from Hezbollah. Missiles, by the way, that cannot be shot by Hezbollah. They don't know how to do it. Only Iranians know how to shoot this particular missile. There is a a working together. The sovereign nations of Syria and Iran are very involved. I was just watching the news earlier this morning, and I saw um, the leader of Hezbollah, as he was giving a statement, the first published statement now, uh, since this conflict has, has been going for the last few weeks, and he comes out and says, we haven't been targeting civilians We've just been targeting the Israeli military and now they're targeting our civilians. And it's the same old turnspeak that is so often used in the Middle East. First, first blood was drawn by Hamas. Second blood by Hezbollah. And the fighting goes on and on. Now, in our study, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, there are actually two aspects of this study today. There's a practical element, and there's a prophetical element. And we're going to save the prophetic for next week. We'll talk more about these things next Sunday. But this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the practical elements of this verse, what God says to Israel all the way back when, as they approach the promised land and they start to come into the region of their brothers, the Edomites. The Edomites. Those brothers that were connected all the way back to Esau and Jacob. And so let's read again, verse 1. We turned and set out out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and circled Mount Seir for 40 days. How many days? 40 years of days. (laughs) They just circled. They were wandering in the wilderness. Now I love this, verse 2. The Lord spoke to me saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north. The language would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. He says, Israel, you're going in circles. You're going in circles, and it's been long enough. You've been going round and round and round. A journey that should have lasted 11 days is now taking you 40 years. Round and round she goes until the Lord finally says, It's been long enough. You've circled long enough. Israel, come out of the wilderness and into the kingdom. Maybe you're in that place a couple of weeks back. I believe the Lord has been declaring to this fellowship, come out of the wilderness and into the kingdom. But some of us are still circling Mount Seir. Some of us continue in our lives to go round and round and round, spinning our wheels in the wilderness. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like this morning you're just going around and around. Maybe there's some old family junk that's just sticking to you. And it's frustrating and you keep going back to it. Maybe you've got some relationship in which you've been wounded or hurt. And in that relationship, you've got conflict. Or maybe you just have plain old sin working its way in your life, and you're going round and round. You hear a statement like, come out of the wilderness and into the kingdom, and your first reaction is, how? I've got this stuff in my life. How do I do this? The Lord would say to all of us, you've circled long enough. Now come out of the wilderness and into the kingdom. How do I do that, Lord? Look, He's got a word for you. He's got a word for you. 
to the end of verse 3 where he says, Now turn. 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 If you're stuck going in circles, the Lord would say to you, Turn. Turn is the meaning of the word repent. Repent. We've talked about this before. Repent is not some big religious word that people use to, to be sorrowful and fall down, although that's a part of repentance. It very simply means turn. Turn away from the place in which you've been circling. Brothers and sisters, you have a choice. You have a decision that you can make to turn to the Lord. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1 tells us in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You cannot get into the kingdom unless you have first repented. Unless you've turned. If you don't turn you continue to circle Mount Seir same place over and over and over. Turn. Repent. Because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus came along Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 and heard that John had been taken into custody and he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. All the people were sitting in darkness and they saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. And the Bible tells us from that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent! Turn! The kingdom is at hand. Stop circling. Repent and turn to the Lord. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. And again, the Hebrew writer tells us, in Hebrews 12.28 that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will stand. A kingdom that will never fall. We're receiving an unshakable kingdom. Turn and come into the kingdom and out of the wilderness. These are the lives God is calling us to live. Lives that are kingdom set. Kingdom focused. Seeking first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom. But listen, often what happens when we finally clue in and stop circling, when we repent and we do finally turn to Jesus, we think it's going to all be hunky-dory, but the reality is the moment we turn to Jesus, we often face conflict. Why is that? Because as long as we're circling, we're no threat to the enemy. As long as I'm wandering around in conflict with with family, with friends, as long as I'm unfocused, as long as I'm not looking to the Lord, I'm no threat. And Satan would be happy to let you circle and circle and circle. That's fine with him. But the moment you recognize that it's time to pursue the Lord, the moment we turn and say, God, I want to live for you now, conflict. Conflict, conflict will come. And inherent in these verses, conflict is dealt with both prophetically and practically. But I want you to consider this morning just three practical ways of dealing with conflict that we can see emerging from these verses. And the first one is very simply this. Deal with conflict compassionately. Deal with conflict compassionately. Look at verse 4. He says turn north. You've circled long enough. Verse 4 says, Command the people saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful and do not provoke them. Deal with conflict compassionately. The Lord says, pay attention, children of Israel. Look out, you're about to approach your old brothers. The brothers of Esau, the family of Esau. Be careful. 
Because they are scared to death. They're shaken in their boots. They're worried. They've heard about you. They know you're coming. And in fact, we saw in the book of Numbers exactly how the Edomites reacted to Israel's presence. Back in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17. The Bible tells us that Moses sent a message to the leader of the Edomites, the people of Esau. They said, please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We'll go along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Edom's response. They said, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with the sword against you. You try to pass through us, we're going to pass the sword through you. Animosity, bitterness, conflict. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We'll go up by the highway. And if we or my livestock do drink any of your water, we'll pay its price. Let us only pass through on our feet and nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Edom was angry. Edom was bitter. Edom was afraid. And what does the Lord tell Israel? Understand that. Be compassionate for that. These people are scared of you. Don't provoke them. Be careful. Deal with this conflict compassionately. Exodus chapter 15 verse 14 tells us the peoples have heard they tremble anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia and the chiefs of Edom were dismayed the leaders of Moab trembling grips them all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away terror and dread fall upon them but gang dealing with conflict in a godly matter requires compassion it's that gut level response that declares I am going to try to feel what my brother is feeling And he may be completely wrong. She may be completely off base. But he, she are still afraid. They still are dealing with hurt. They still are bitter. Their feelings, however misguided, are still real. And so if you're facing conflict in your own life, the truth is that we're not going to heal relationships. We won't restore relationships until we're ready to set pride aside and deal with conflict compassionately. Considering how the other person might be feeling. And you want the most breathtaking example of this in all scripture? It's when Jesus, nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He understood. He had every right authority and power in that moment from the cross to crush everybody in sight. He could have struck the world at that point, dead in a heartbeat. But the mind of Christ, Jesus, seeing this conflict, in the middle of this conflict, said, Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. That's compassion at the greatest depth. Deal with conflict compassionately. You see, in the flesh, the way we tend to deal with conflict is we use their fear. We use their confusion. We use their bitterness against them. And we try to trip them up. Cause them more opportunity to be bitter. Cause them to fail. It's personal propaganda. It's psychological warfare. Let them fear. It just gives gives me the upper hand. I can use it against them. And that's the way the flesh functions. But in the spirit, we don't provoke. 
We don't stir up. We approach things with gentleness and kindness and self-control. And Paul writes in Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, we will also walk by the Spirit. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Living by the Spirit deals with conflict compassionately. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Don't provoke them. I will not give you any of their land, even as a little footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Skip down to verse 9. The Lord then said to Moses, Do not harass Moab. Don't provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession. I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. I believe that was the place where piracy began, Ar. <laughs> Skip on down to verse 9. Sorry. Go down to verse 19. It also says, When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them. I will not give you any of their land, the land of the sons of Ammon, as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. What's going on here? The Lord is saying, as the people come into the land, He said, hey, all this land is not yours for the taking. Don't take it all. I have land that I have allotted for you, land that I'm going to give you, and peoples, by the way, that I am going to drive out before you. But I've given this land to Edom. I've given this land to Moab. I've given this land to Ammon. Do not come against them. What does this practically explain to us? Well, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul said that the Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. The Lord, listen, Paul says, has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their their habitation. So what does that tell me about conflict in my life? Deal with conflict not only compassionately, but contentedly. Deal with conflict contentedly. You see, the Lord says, Israel, I've got land set out for you. I have a place designed for you. This land is your land, but not that land. And not over here, and not over here. You be content with what I already have for you, and don't try to bust out your borders or your boundaries. I have given you something. Be content. Be content. For getting at the root of conflict, at the very root of conflict in our lives... There's discontent. I'm not content with what I have. And I don't understand why she always has to have things that I'd really rather have than what I have. That's discontent. Larry Sickles on Wednesday night shared something with me. He said, you know, it's impossible to be thankfully discontent. How can you stand there? You can't do it. You can't stand there and thank the Lord and be discontent with what the Lord has blessed you with. On a day like today, how can anybody be discontent? Discontentedness brings about conflict in our lives because it it ultimately ends up in covetousness. I want what he's got, I like what she's got, and in God's economy, gang, things don't add up the way they do for us. When we compare house to house, car to car, clothing to clothing, blessing to blessing, and we look at what other people have compared to what we have, and God's saying, hang on a second. Wait a minute. Is it not lawful, Matthew 20, verse 15, for me to do what I wish with what is my own? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything on a thousand hills. And he owns the thousand hills. It's all his in the the first place. And so when we get in conflict because someone has what we don't, when we are discontent, what we're saying is, Lord, it is yours to give, but I really want more of what you had to give and you're not giving me enough. Discontent. It stirs up conflict. Gang, listen, contentedness is not evidenced 
in days like this when everything seems right with the world that's not when you know you are truly content you want to know when you know you're truly content it's when you're in the middle of conflict and struggle and hardship and you're still content that's when you know you're a contented person not when everything's perfect contentedness is seen in conflict in how we respond to trials and stress and how we treat other people who we might be struggling with are we content with what we have Job said in Job 1 verse 20 after losing his servants his livestock and even his own children his very first response was worship he began to praise the Lord that's contentment Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's contentment. He gave to me. Wonderful. He took it away. Praise the Lord. It's His to give. It's His to take. And we're told that through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God, because you can't blame God when you're praising God. You can't be angry with God and worship Him at the same time. And that's contentedness. And Paul teaches us clearly, the Spirit tells us that contentedness has nothing to do with our circumstances. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have also learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so the Spirit says, gang, when you are in conflict, deal with the other person compassionately, but also deal with them contentedly. Compassionately, contentedly. And number three, finally, deal with conflict confidently. Confidently. Look at verse 6. The Lord says to Moses, You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He's known your wanderings through the wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. Watch this. You have not lacked a thing. That's confidence. I've had everything I've ever needed in my life. God has always provided. He has always been there one way or another. He has always been there. And I have lacked for nothing. The whole reason saying the children of Israel wandered for those 40 years is because they lacked confidence in what the Lord could do. He brought them in a journey up to the border of the promised land. But they lacked confidence and faith. And in fear, they would not go in. Well, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 19 tells us, You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way. The pillar of fire didn't leave them by night to light the way for them in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Did you know that? That the Holy Spirit was instructing the people of Israel in the wilderness as they wandered? Nehemiah tells us that was so. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want, and their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell, which is more than I can say for a day at Disneyland. (laughs) As we saw on Wednesday night, your father gang goes before you. Even in conflict, the father goes first. He is before you. If you will invite him into the fray. If you will say, Father, I need you here. I have confidence in you. I don't have confidence in how I'm going to act in this present crisis. 
in this argument. My confidence is not in me because what I do is exactly what we're seeing happen in the Middle East. I escalate. <laughs> Ask my wife. I do it real well. I know how to escalate a conflict. How to bring peace. How to bring restoration. That's what God does. Invite Him in to do it. Deal with conflict confidently in the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32, it says, For all this you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp, in fire by night and cloud by day, to show you the way in which you should go. There's great confidence in knowing the Lord is with me, in knowing that I am leaning on Him in a struggle, and not myself. Ever been in the throes of a fight and actually said out loud, Lord, I just don't know what to do here. If you've ever been in that place, the better question, the one that grows confidence is, what are you doing here, Father? What do you want to do here, Lord? And how can I better serve your interest as opposed to my own? Deal with conflict confidently. And my confidence will never survive the onslaught of human conflict if it's based on my ability, my strength, to work it out. You know this. If you've ever had an argument in your life, anyone ever not had an argument? Some of the very, very, very little people haven't quite yet. Well, maybe they have. First John chapter four, chapter five, verse fourteen says the following: This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Let me say that again. I'm not sure if we really buy that. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And John says, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests with which we have asked from Him. The problem is, we don't ask. We circle Mount Seir. We stay in the conflict. We fight it out. We try to figure it out. And we don't ask for help. Occasionally we'll have the sound of the shrieking eels from downstairs in our house. Cheryl and I will be upstairs talking or just about our business and we hear the sound of goings off. (laughs) Of younger people than ourselves in conflict. Fighting it out. And they don't realize it, but there are times where we sit there and rather than rush down the stairs and, and immediately enter, we just sit there and wait. We let them go at it. I'm not naming names, Hannah. I didn't mention Hayden, did I? I didn't say anything about Corey. But we will sit upstairs and and, and hear our children going at it and literally look at each other. We've done this and and kind of nodded. You hear them? Yeah, I hear them. Okay. And not do anything. What? I just see I'm stirring up conflict right now. But we'll wait. Why? Because we want to be invited into the situation. Sometimes I literally, I would just wait to see if my kids will ask for help. Because I want them to learn that they do have a place that they can go to get help. And oftentimes the conversation we have after the fact is, you know, we could have avoided all this if you had just said, Dad, I need some help here. Dad, will you enter in here? Dang, there's an important principle here. It's not just about kids and family and, and how to deal with these things. James chapter 4, verse 1. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is it not the, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You'll lust, and you don't have, so you commit murder. And we've yet to have a murder downstairs in our house, and I'm thankful for that. But he says you are envious, and you cannot obtain. So you fight, and you quarrel, and James says you do not have because you do not ask. And I don't know how many of you right now, I'm not even sure what the application of this is personally for you today. But if you happen to be in the midst of conflict, have you asked the Lord to enter into that conflict? Have you joined together? Husbands and wives, you want to end a fight real fast? Pray together. That is the surest way to stop strife in a marriage. Start praying together. People come and they say, we need help, we need marriage counseling. And my first thought is, when was the last time the two of you sat down and prayed and sought the Father's will for your marriage? You want to heal a marriage? Enter in to intercession. Husbands, start praying for your wives. Wives, start praying for your I'm not going to pray for her. I'm not going to pray for that jerk. Look, that's why the conflict goes round and round and Mount Seir becomes home. Pray for them. Invite the Father into the fray. Lord, what is your will in this situation? Jesus, would you bind up my wounds with confidence in you? Confidence in your will and your plans. Parents, are you praying the will of God together for your kids? Hey, are we joining together to pray the will of the Father for our lives and in our relationships and in our families? Are we actually seeking the Father with confidence that if we ask according to His will, He hears us and He makes it better? He is the great resolver, the great restorer, not me, not you. We don't have that power. As I said before, I've got all the power in the world to mess things up, but not to restore. We need to be more about the business of prayer and confidence asking the Father in. By the way, gentlemen, let me just share with you that every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. we're here praying. And it's been awesome. We've done it two Thursday mornings. And I recoil at the thought of 6 a.m., truly. But at 6 a.m., there's a group of guys here praying. And I invite every single man among us to be here. Oh, I, I, you know, 6 a.m., that, that doesn't work with my schedule. I don't have time for that. I've got business obligations, really. How about if someone offers you tickets to the ball game? You got time for that? You got time for an afternoon of golf? You got time to work out? If they, those of you with kids, if your son has to go to the dentist, can you take a little time off and get him to the dentist? If you've got obligations, how about we obligate ourselves to prayer as a body? Do you realize what would happen in this place if every man and woman among us were praying together? And blow the lid off of this barn. Which would be really cool. <laughs> Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8 I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And Proverbs 16.9 tells us the, man of mind, the mind of man plans his way but the Lord the Lord directs his steps. The more planning I do the more messed up I get but the more I allow God to direct my steps and invite him into the fray the more his will is accomplished. Now gang, I have personally and painfully discovered in life that there are some conflicts I just cannot fix. And it's only really been in the last probably five years of my life that I've realized this. I always used to believe that by the sheer force of my will I could make something better. And you know what I've discovered? I can't. 
there's some relationships that no matter what you try, you don't seem to be able to fix. There's nothing you can do. You exhaust all resources. You, you use your mind to the hilt. You come up with every possible way of making a relationship better. And you get to that point where there's nothing I can do. The conflict is still there. And I've tried everything and I cannot fix it. And the Lord says, have you asked me yet? Why don't you stop trying? Why don't you just enter into some prayer? Why don't you just set aside some time daily just to be praying about it? Talk to me. Let my authority, my power, my grace go before you in the conflict. Well, verse 8 tells us that they passed beyond their brothers, their sons of Esau who lived in Seir, away from the Arab road, away from Eleph, away from Ezzi and Geber. They turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. They just went the other way. And they avoided the conflict Altogether. Now the children of Israel have remained in conflict throughout history. We're going to talk more about that prophetically next week. We're going to look at what's happening, have kind of a prophecy update, to understand what the scriptures say about this present crisis, and get better understanding to that. But gang, loved ones, listen. Let's begin right here. Let's you and I determine that this is not a place for conflict. Let's stop dancing around mountains here, and let's come into the kingdom by coming to each other with the Lord compassionately understanding each other contentedly approaching each other and coming before each other with the confidence that God does want relationships restored that He does want to bless with love and compassion and peace wouldn't that be great? then what a wonderful world this would be let's bow Father, even as I pray, I sense that there is a great deal of conflict in our lives. There's a lot of struggle going on. Lord, we recognize we cannot go forward where there is struggle, where there is contention, where there is conflict. We can't, Father, move forward personally in our lives to deeper understanding of You, a sweeter walk with Jesus, more peace in You, Lord. I truly believe the reason why so much of this eludes us, Father, is because we are in conflict. And Jesus, you, did, you died to resolve that, to bring peace. Father, I believe that this church cannot go forward as long as there is conflict within. And this fellowship will stay right here, doing the same thing week in and week out, that decisions can't even be made for this body unless all conflict is resolved that we might move forward in unity and peace and Jesus we come before you confessing that we don't know how to bring this about Lord I pray for those who do not know how to fix their marriages I pray for those who do not know how to fix family relationships 
Pray for those fathers who do not know how to fix father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter relationships. Pray, Father, for those who have a one-time friendship that now is left to quietness and suspicion. And I pray, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into the middle of all of our conflict and be the peacemaker. And Jesus, if you by your Spirit need to humble us, I pray that you'd humble us. Wash the pride out of our lives that we can approach each other lovingly, compassionately. Forgive us, for we have sinned. We repent. We turn to you. And we long for restoration. The Spirit, please be at work among us. As we pray, perhaps you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And you desire to have the peace in your life that is promised to those who follow Him. Perhaps you've never been baptized. We have a great pond out there that's a wonderful place to do it. I invite you this morning to make a commitment to pray to the Father. Not to walk out of here without giving your life over to Him. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, and if you want Him, pray this with me, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I repent. And I pray that you would forgive me. And I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Son of the living God. And I accept you this morning as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.